Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. We're going to look at just three verses, but we're actually going to focus in just on the very first sentence. Um, But let's go ahead and read this. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, we gather today to thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would give us understanding of this most foundational passage in the Bible for the existence of man. Help us to learn more about what you think about us and what that means for our lives. And for this, we need your grace. We ask for that this morning by your spirit that you would give it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you remember the news story about Balloon Boy? A number of you do, not that long ago. Uh, Well, in a couple years, it'll only be a little-known question in Trivial Pursuit. But here's the short version. A publicity-hungry amateur scientist, father of three, pulled off a hoax that captured the attention of America. On October 15, 2009, not that long ago, uh, Richard Henney released a large gray helium balloon that looks somewhat like a UFO from a 50s movie. And he called to report, he called the authorities to report that his nine-year-old son, whose name was Falcon, was trapped inside the balloon. And as the balloon floated some 50 miles across the Colorado sky, newsrooms across America sprang into action. People prayed, emergency medical teams stood by, the police were mobilized, Denver International Airport was shut down, and several National Guard helicopters uh, were deployed in hot pursuit of the balloon. And as the helium began to leak out of the balloon, the balloon eventually crashed in a field, and rescuers made a mad dash to lessen the blow and to save the boy's life if he were still alive. But when they got there, they discovered there was no one inside the balloon. So a manhunt was quickly organized, thinking that perhaps Falcon had fallen out of the balloon sometime earlier. But then came word that Falcon was safe and sound at home. He had been hiding, following his father's instructions, up in the family's attic. And he got sleepy and fallen asleep and woke up a few hours later to a media frenzy. Now this is not about balloons or hoaxes or men who use their children as pawns to pitch a reality TV show. It's about abortion, one of the most painful and uh, politicized issues in our culture and in our public discourse. So what exactly does the killing of a baby in the womb have to do with the boy in the balloon? I bring it up for one reason. It helps to focus our attention on a very crucial question. 
What's in there? What's in there? If we believe, as we did, that there was a human being inside that balloon, apparently we'll stop at nothing to protect and preserve that life. No amount of money or energy or equipment is too big. We will do everything, in fact, feel that we must do everything to protect and preserve the life of a fellow human being in distress. Likewise, if we believe what's growing inside of a mother's womb is a living human being, should we not think the same? If a balloon is merely filled with air or if the womb is merely occupied with a clump of cells, then no action is needed. Knowing what's inside makes all the difference. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. As you know, we're all celebrating Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, which I think is also a Sanctity of Life issue. Both of these issues revolve around the concept of what is and what is not acceptable in how man treats man. Is there something in a biblical worldview that demands that we treat each other in a special way? And I would argue that there is. And I believe the answer to that question is found in our passage today in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. Because this passage lays out the foundation for what is known as the doctrine of man. You might call it biblical anthropology. So what does the Bible teach us about our own humanity? And today we're going to look specifically at what does Genesis 1 tell us about man. But we're going to do it from a very broad perspective. Normally I go into the text in some detail, but we're going to sort of do the big picture today. And in order to get a grasp on the big picture, you need to understand today's present philosophies. And that should be the first blank uh, there in your outline, today's present philosophies. See, the issue is actually much bigger than the debate over abortion or the debate over euthanasia. Those are subsets of much larger issues. More important than those debates is the debate over having a sanctity of life ethic versus having a quality of life ethic. And more important than that debate is the debate between absolutes, is there truth that doesn't change, that it's the same for all people at all times, versus relativism, does truth change, and is it determined by each person for themselves? And even greater than those debates is the ultimate division between God and Satan, holiness and sin, heaven and hell. How you decide these issues has eternal consequences and ultimately will shape your decision on all of the rest of the issues. So we're going to take them one at a time, starting with sanctity of life versus quality of life. One view holds that man is completely autonomous and the center of human existence. Man is the yardstick by which we measure the universe. They would say there are no absolutes. Every situation demands that each person exercise critical thinking and the overriding concern of any health-related issue is that person's quality of life. The key question for them, is this person able to have a quality of life that any other person has the right to expect? 
Now, the other view affirms that God is the center of all existence, and we understand ourselves only when, as Calvin said, we view life through the spectacles of Scripture. This view holds that God alone orders the world, defines people's place and purpose in it, that human beings have value at every stage of life because they are members of his creation. This is the sanctity of life ethic. It's a primary Christian belief. And this this ethic stems from two passages in the book of Genesis that teach us that man is made in the image of God and holds a unique place in God's creation. First passage is our text for today, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So here we read that man was created in the image of God. And although this image was marred in the fall of Adam and Eve, which we'll get to in Genesis 3, it's not lost. And so all people bear the image of God in some way, though not perfectly. We see this come back again in Genesis chapter 9, in the story of Noah. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. A repeat of the dominion mandate from Genesis 1. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And as for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Here we see God's prohibition against murder. And notice it's coming long before the Ten Commandments. We're hundreds of years before the Ten Commandments. And there's many other passages in the Bible that speak to the subject of murder and further define how we're to understand and respond to this. But notice why God says murder is wrong and carries such a high penalty. It's clearly because to kill another person is to kill a living human being made in God's image. Again, the sanctity of life ethic is grounded and the Christian belief that all people are created in the image of God. So we have the first two sides of this debate, sanctity of life versus quality of life. Both sides hold that theirs is the more important value. But let's step up to the next larger debate, and that's the debate of absolutes versus relativism. One side says everything is relative. There is no objective basis for truth, And no one should be permitted to infringe on another's freedom with his or her own belief system. You might say that relativists objectively believe that there are no objective beliefs. Did you get that? They objectively believe that there are no objective beliefs. When somebody tells you there are no absolutes, remind them that that's an absolute statement. 
Now, we can laugh about that, and you can say that that doesn't really make sense. But listen carefully. You need to understand that's the majority view in America today. Back in 1990, the Barna Group took a poll. 66% of Americans believe there is no such thing as absolute truth. I don't think that number has gone down in the last 20 years. You also need to understand this is actually the majority view of Christians today. That same poll, 53% of evangelical Christians held the same view. Although 88% of them said the Bible is the written word of God and accurate in all that it teaches. My guess is all of those statistics have gotten worse as well. It would appear that many evangelical Christians who are active in the church, who claim to believe the Bible, are no longer looking, as Calvin said, through the lenses of Scripture and have lost their basis for making moral judgments. And when that kind of confusion reigns among the church, should we be surprised at the cry, there are no absolutes, when we hear it coming from the secular media? Michael Horton has written in his book, Made in America, that today we must understand there is no basis for moral absolutes apart from theological absolutes. We cannot tell each other, much less the world, what Christianity definitively teaches in clear doctrinal terms, then we have no reason to expect anything but intolerance from our neighbors when we try to enforce upon them moral absolutes. He says we can't presume to think like relativists and act like absolutists. And yet the Bible clearly believes in absolutes. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an absolute. The only way to heaven is through Jesus. God said, thou shalt not murder. That's an absolute. If somebody adds the statement, well, you know, it depends on the situation, then it becomes relative. May be true, it may not be true. And that's why the Bible, God's special revelation to mankind is important because it sets forth absolute truth given from God to man. But without its moral absolutes, everything becomes relative. When we forget God's word, it's a short time until we forget God. And when we stop worshiping the creator, we begin worshiping the creature. Romans 1 makes that clear. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And when that happens... We're then able to make claims for truth to be whatever we want truth to be. And so it is these two very different present philosophies has led us to a situation of being highly polarized people. Highly polarized people. Chuck Colson said, when relativism reigns in the country, there's little hope of reaching a solution in the debates over abortion and euthanasia. Because according to relativism, neither side's true. Both are relative. Therefore, neither is right and neither is wrong. Both are merely an expression of your feelings. There is no objective standard by which we can choose between the two. Opponents grow further and further apart, differing on a level so fundamental they are unable to even communicate. And so both sides simply shout louder. 
And the issue we shout about the most is abortion and the beginning of life. No issue has polarized this country uh, like the issue of abortion. Our nation has been more divided over this issue, uh, I believe, like none other since slavery. And the difficulty comes in the fact that these two sides are arguing from two completely different points of view. One side is arguing from the point of view of absolute truth, as they believe it is found in the Bible. The other side is arguing from the point of view of relativism, that truth is determined by each person for themselves. Randy Alcorn has written that wherever you fall, the numbers concerning abortion are staggering. The combined deaths of Americans and all the wars of all our history combined come out at a little bit more than one and a half million people. That's just slightly more than the number of unborn children being killed by abortion in America every single year. That's 3,700 abortions every day, or approximately one every 23 seconds. It adds up to about 55 million abortions in the last 35 years, which would be the equivalent of wiping out the entire populations of Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Minnesota, Iowa, Oregon, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Oklahoma. And when you stop and realize that only 3% of the abortions in the world happen in America, there is a relentless global slaughter going on. The number of abortions that happen in America every 20 years combined is the number of abortions that are happening in the rest of the world every year. Primarily, the, the largest place would be in Asia. And again, it goes back to that sanctity of life versus quality of life ethic. Now, regardless of the arguments for or against abortion, despite the fact that every poll taken by every side clearly shows that most Americans believe abortion shouldn't be used as a means of birth control, it's equally clear that that's essentially what it's become. It's widely regarded as simply another method of birth control. And the Bible, which I have said, is the objective standard of absolute truth for the believer, reminds us that God is the giver of life, the one by whose power fetal development occurs, to whom every living soul belongs. And this being so, life is not to be taken on one's own initiative. People are not to cause the death of the innocent and the guiltless. The Bible says the blood of the innocent cries out to God from the ground. The Bible also makes no distinction between a child before birth and after birth using the same word in both Hebrew and Greek, even though different words exist in both languages. There's biblical passages in Genesis, Exodus, the Psalms, Proverbs, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Luke that teach us that the unborn child is a human person with a living soul whose life is valuable in God's eyes. And as Francis Schaeffer has clearly shown, arguments on the beginning of life are intrinsically bound up with arguments on the end of life. And that moves us on to the next issue that polarizes us, which is euthanasia and the end of life. Now, about 25 years ago, the Journal of the American Medical Association, printed an anonymous article entitled, It's Over Debbie. 
You can Google it. It's out there. The article was actually written by a hospital intern who was called to the side of Debbie, who was a 20-year-old terminal cancer patient. This intern had never seen Debbie before. He knew nothing about her except what he read on her chart and what he discerned or thought he discerned from her moans. He claimed she murmured something to the effect of, let's get it over with. So the young intern went ahead and gave Debbie a massive shot of morphine, enough, he wrote later, to do the job. Four minutes later, Debbie's heart stopped. And this new doctor's only comment was, it's over, Debbie. He said, he wrote in the article, I accomplished my goal to give her rest. And he only had to kill her to do it. Unfortunately, that article thrust the issue of euthanasia or mercy killing into the public debate. And history teaches us that once a crime becomes a debate, it's not long before it becomes a practice. Years ago, Billy Graham gave a, a somewhat prophetic warning in his book, Storm Warning. It said, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ must stand up for moral integrity, faithfulness to Scripture, and obedience to his call to stand up to the destroyers of this age. Doing something, even if it feels hopeless or seems insignificant, is better than doing nothing. It's a famous story uh, of one day a man was out walking on the beach, and he noticed it was filled with hundreds of starfish that were washed ashore. And a little farther down the beach, he found a young boy who was picking up the starfish and throwing them back into the sea. He told the boy he was just wasting his time. There were so many, the boy couldn't possibly make a difference. And the little boy looked at the man, picked up another starfish, threw it into the sea and said, it makes a difference to that one. Which begs the question, who are you able to make a difference for? You know that as a church, we support Lifeline, which operates the First Choice Pregnancy Care Center. That's why we handed out all the baby bottles earlier. But they don't need just our spare change. They could use volunteers. Doesn't mean you have to become a counselor. It means you could become a babysitter for a counselor, freeing them to go there. You don't have to handle the entire issue or solve all the problems, but you could serve in some small way. It'll make a difference in someone's life. And inside that baby bottle is a little form. If you're interested in that, to sign up to get more information. Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop, former Surgeon General of our country, began their book, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, with these words. Cultures can be just judged in many ways, but eventually every nation in every age must be judged by this test. How did it treat people? Each generation, each wave of humanity evaluates its predecessors on this basis. The final measure of mankind's humanity is how humanely people treat one another. Now, I know when it comes to politics, political issues, not everyone here is going to agree with me. I generally don't address politics, don't tell you my particular views. I do hold them, but generally I don't talk about them for the sake of the gospel. But I will say, as followers of Jesus Christ, as believers in the authority and inerrancy and inspiration and sufficiency of the scriptures,
we must be unequivocally and unapologetically pro-life. We cannot concede ground. And we need to be called to implement this in our lives in a variety of different ways, but we're all called to defend the cause of the weak, the helpless, the defenseless, and to stop what the book of Numbers calls the slaughter of the innocents. And that brings us back to our problem. You see, even if we take a firm position based on the Bible, we have a perception problem. We have a perception problem. The first one's perception of hatred. There's a perception out there that we hate the people on the other side of the argument. If I turn on the TV or open the uh, newspaper and I see a picture of someone claiming to be a Christian carrying a sign that says God hates fags or abortionists rot in hell, it crushes my spirit. How will those people ever come to believe in a God of love and grace if all we communicate or demonstrate is a God of hate? I believe this kind of behavior is only uh, not only self-defeating, but unbiblical and unchristian, and it drives people away from Christ. And we have no right to do that. We should pray that we communicate love and sympathy and caring and forgiveness, not hatred and anger. No one's ever been argued into the kingdom of God. You can't hit people upside the head with your Bible and expect them to agree with you. Hatred is not part of our message. Even if we hate the sin of killing unborn children, and we hate all of the evil consequences it brings about in those people's lives, we're still under the biblical command to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that includes people on the other side of the line. We must be able to hate sin without hating sinners. Paul gives us a reminder of that in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We're all sinners, and it is only because of what Christ has done that we're not standing on the other side of the line with them. We have to deal with the perception of hatred. We also have to deal with the perception of hardened hearts. We have a perception problem here too. We often think those people who disagree with us have hardened hearts and seared consciences. They're without hope and without God and there's nothing we can do about it and so we arrogantly dismiss them. And yes, it's true that in many cases they are without hope and without God in the world. But the context of that verse is Ephesians 1, or excuse me, Ephesians 2, verses 12 and 13. And it shows it's clearly referring to us. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, we need to see that people who disagree with us, we need to see them as people. And we need to pray for them. 
And we need to pray in the words of Ezekiel that the Lord will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, just as he did for you when you lived without hope and without God in the world. Once, once we can begin to see people as people, even those who disagree with us on the most intense and controversial issues, then, I think finally and only then, can we begin to make a powerful presentation of the gospel to those people. That would be the fourth blank there, a powerful presentation. Because it's going to take a powerful presentation to win the smaller debates of abortion and euthanasia, and it's going to take the same powerful presentation to win the greater debates of heaven and hell. And the power of God's love and forgiveness presented by God's people who are loving and forgiving. Man may not be pure, but he is still human. And as far as we're still human, we retain the image of God. We're still valuable creations of God. We may no longer be worthy, but we still have worth. And it's the resounding biblical message of redemption. The people God created out of his love are the same people he is moved by love to redeem. And we have to return to the fundamental belief that because man is created in the image of God, all human life is sacred. We should not place a relative standard of quality above God's absolute standard of human worth. And the church is responsible to convey God's love and acceptance to all people, regardless of their past. Precisely because we believe that all people are created in God's image. I remember hearing a story about an older couple who had taken in a uh, homeless pregnant teenager into their home. And every night when they sat down to dinner, they had her repeat these words. God does not love me because I am good. God loves me because I am precious. And I am precious because Christ died for me. All people are valuable in his eyes. All people are loved by him. And as a church, we do not gather to condemn but to redeem. People need to know that God stands ready to forgive them and welcome them into his kingdom. They need to know that uh, God's people stand ready to welcome them and accept them into his kingdom on earth, which is the church. Again, Chuck Colson reminds us, let us not forget the first words of the gospel are repent and believe. And that God's forgiveness is offered to all those who confess their sins before him and have a repentant heart. The kingdom is not built by group or party or church, but one at a time, soul by soul, and each one counts. What about those who've struggled with some of these issues we've already discussed? What does God say to them? God tells them he's a God of understanding and compassion, who is faithful and just, who forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. He's a God who's interested in our recovery from the past, in our restoration, uh, in the restoration of our relationship with him. God knows no sin and has redeemed people. He has forgiven them. He has removed their sin as far as the east is from the west. You need to know that our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, has a position on this issue. I want you to listen to the conclusion of the PCA report. And that you can get a copy of this report. The PCA bookstore sells it. 
I'm pretty sure it's online if you go to the PCA Historical Center. But the conclusion ends this way. The fundamental task of the church is the proclamation of God's word as it bears upon individuals and institutions. The Holy Scripture, which is God's word written, is graciously given as the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. But it is no less the absolute authority given to regulate any institution or individual as regards the created life, which only God has the right to give or take away. On this basis, we believe the intentional killing of an unborn child is a violation of God's command and authority. Scripture considers such a child a person and is thus covered by divine protection, even as a person after birth. Any medical support or historical precedent can only be of secondary authority when we have a clear word from God on moral questions. Yet as often as the case, a candid evaluation supports the teaching of Scripture. All truth is God's truth, and any alleged conflict is thus but a misreading of one area of his truth. We cannot stress too strongly our authority in this matter. God in his word speaks of the unborn child as a person and treats him as such, and so must we. The Bible teaches the sanctity of life, and so must we. The Bible, especially in the sixth commandment, gives concrete protection to that life which bears the image of God. We must uphold that commandment. There is a danger of weakening our witness by either retreating from an absolute ethic revealed in God's word or by uncritically associating ourselves with a humanistic philosophy of right to life based on human wisdom. The church, as the repository of God's revelation, must speak from that authority and must do so without compromise. If you're going to be in the PCA, you need to know where we stand. If you know your history, you know that after the fall of the Roman Empire, Europe took a turn for the worse. Actually, it took many turns for the worse. Cities collapsed as people were scattered. Cultural literacy, law and order crumbled. Warring bands of tribes roamed freely across the land. It's a period of time that's often referred to as the Dark Ages. Early medieval Europe seemed destined for complete barbarianism, and only one force prevented this, the church. Instead of conforming to the barbarian culture, the church modeled a counterculture to a world engulfed in destruction and confusion. It was the church who modeled the discipline and the moral order that was so needed in the world around them. It was the church who preserved not only the scriptures, but classical literature as well. It was the church who built the towns and ran the schools and opened the hospitals and bridged the creeks and cut the roads and showed the masses how to farm. It was the church who chose to live by the word of God, rejecting both the violence of the barbarians and the decadence of the Romans. It was the stubborn faith of Christians who held back the night, and Europe survived. But I believe today we live in a new age, both in Europe and here in the West. A postmodern age that has the potential to become a very dark age. And like the Middle Ages, the church today needs to serve as an outpost of truth, morality, civility, and civilization in the midst of a culture 
that seems to be ever rapidly darkening around us with both violence and decadence. And even though the church is shot through with people who've bought into the relativism of the world, even though the church is filled with sinners like you and like me, it is the one institution that has the capability to challenge and transform the culture by bearing witness to God's absolute standards of righteousness and God's absolute capacity for love and forgiveness. Only the church is capable of this because only the church has the authority beyond itself. The true church, which holds to the absolute authoritative standards of Scripture and which is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Carl F.H. Henry said it well, The barbarians are coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And let the church that is here now come with good news, with the only durable good news, and come in time. The one thing we see from our passage today is it all begins with Genesis. And the foundation laid in today's passage for the Christian doctrine of man, which states that human life is sacred because we've been created in the image of God. After all, Genesis is all about God. And Genesis is all about grace. May his grace fill us as we study this book of beginnings. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have made all things out of nothing. And then you made man from the dust of the earth, and you crowned him with glory and honor by making him in your image. Honor beyond anything we could ever deserve. And so it's all grace. And we thank you for it. Lord, grant that we would know you better through the book of Genesis, which is your word. Grant that we would believe it and live by its truth. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.